How do you define a successful life? If your answer can be summarized as earthly excellence and sacred significance, you're at the right place. Join host Stephanie Smith as she shares three keys unlocking a life of lasting purpose. Learn yourself, love God, and live connected. You'll become smarter about yourself, skilled in human dynamics, savvy about the Christian faith, and strengthened to pass this wisdom on to upcoming generations. And now, let's get started. Welcome back to Life's Key 3. I'm so delighted that you are here. Of all of the billion other places that you could be listening right now to other podcasts on YouTube channels or radio or all the other places you could be listening, you've chosen to be here. So I want you to know I appreciate that and I want to honor your time with quality content. Hey, I've got a question for you. If you've been a Christian for a while, have you ever heard a sermon from the story of Abigail and Nabal? Now, maybe you have, but it's typically not the story that gets held up as the ideal marriage. Now, to be certain, there's a lot of reasons for that. But this story of Abigail packs some powerful messages and life lessons for everyone not just women, but maybe especially for women. We're going to dive into that today. But first, I want to tell you this. If you haven't already, hey, subscribe to this podcast. Leave a rating and a review. Reviews are especially important, and they're a great way to help other people around the world find this podcast. Also, I'm going to share some details at the end of today's episode about how you can use this podcast as the backbone of a strategic Bible study for you and your entire family. So stay tuned. I'll share those at the end of today's teaching. Okay, let's jump in. Today we're picking up with 1 Samuel chapter 25. This book is packed with story after story after story. It has so many life lessons in it. It's filled with murder and romance mystery, comedy, drama, you name it, this book pretty much has it covered. So what we're looking at today is the story of David and Abigail and a man called Nabal. Not Nabal as in belly button, but Nabal, N-A-B-A-L. So first of all, let's catch up with what has been happening in David's life since we last looked at our previous episode in chapter 21. Since then, he has been on the run from Saul. Saul is such a tragic figure in the Bible. And so I want to spend a little time also catching us up on Saul because there's so many lessons that we can be, that we need to learn from Saul's life as well. You know, it's easy for us as humans to want to characterize people as good or bad. But most of the time, we're just not that easy to categorize, and Saul is definitely one of those people. He has some phenomenal characteristics, and he does so many things well. But he also messes up so many things, and he makes so many choices. And you know what drives most of those choices? It's fear. That's right. It's fear. 
we see when he was first going to be coronated, he's already been told by Samuel that God has chosen him to be the very first king of Israel. That'll give you a place in history. But when it comes time for his actual coronation, where is he? He's hiding behind the baggage and the search party has to go out and bring him to his own coronation. Imagine how that would go over today. Hey, President-elect, it's time for your inauguration. Where are you? Oh, wait, you're hiding behind the grandstand. I don't think that'd go over too well. That would be a public relations nightmare. But that's exactly where we saw Saul in the beginning. And since then, he has continued to be motivated and driven by fear. Sometimes he uses that fear as a way to hide when he's supposed to show up. Sometimes he uses that fear to move ahead when he's supposed to wait. But he continues to be motivated by fear. And it's kind of like all of that fear has coalesced into this paranoia about David. Saul knows by this point that his kingship is not going to get passed down from his son to his grandson and so on and so forth. Rather than focusing, however, on just being the best king that he can be and letting God take care of the future for his family and for the Israelites, he becomes obsessed with wiping out the man that he knows that God has chosen to be king after him. Now, make no mistakes. David and Saul are not having some sort of civil war going on. David is no threat to Saul. As a matter of fact, if Saul had chosen to not be so motivated by fear, he could have built a powerful legacy for himself by utilizing David's gifts and abilities as a fantastic military man. But instead of really having a heart for his people, because if he'd really been about serving his people in his position as leader, that's what he had done. Instead, what he does is he wants the people to serve him. And that's a key difference in leadership styles. A good leader says, I am here to serve you. A selfish leader says, you are here to serve me. Another mark of good versus poor leadership is, do I see a person or people who may or will definitely take over my position someday as a threat to be eliminated or a person to be mentored? Saul could have absolutely taken David under his wing and he could have mentored him and he would have left a stronger nation for David to step into. But Saul's heart was not about his people. It was all about himself. You see, Saul is divided. On one hand, he does go and fight the Philistines who are a very real threat to the Israelites. And we do see that he has success that God gives him. I mean, there are plenty of times he actually goes out and engages in battle. He doesn't just send other people to do the so-called dirty work, but his heart is divided. And it's divided because he's so self-absorbed. A self-absorbed heart will always be a divided heart. Saul goes out and he engages in these battles with the Philistines, but then what does he do? 
then when he wins and he's finished with one, instead of going back home and trying to develop his nation and to protect them even more, he goes hunting for David. And he wastes so much of his and other people's time and resources trying to go and kill David. And the cost of that cannot be measured. It's easy in the story of David to just see Saul as this bit character who just stood in total opposition to David. But I think that is not a very accurate representation because there's so much about Saul that is good. And yet the one thing that we can learn from his life is the tragic loss of opportunities and even lives when a person continues to be motivated by fear and to stay self-absorbed. Okay, let's jump back up now to the story of David and Abigail and Nabal in chapter 25. Saul is pursuing David again. And so David and a band of men and associated personnel that are with them. So these men have wives with them as well, and they may have children with them. And so David has this assortment of people who have coalesced around him. And it's interesting because in earlier chapters, we read that these are people who have basically had a really hard lot in life. They have complaints, they have despair, they have grudges. It's not exactly the kind of company that you would really want to have coalesce around you, but that's what David winds up with. Now, it does seem at some point that whether it's out of fear for their own lives or because of a stepping into a real respect for David, that David's family also joins him. And we don't know whether that lasted for a long period of time or if that was just for a period of time. But it does seem that there had been some level of family unity, even if it was based on, hey, Saul's out to kill us all, so let's let that be our motivation for coming together. So Saul and his band of men, I'm not going to say they're merry men because I don't think that's very accurate according to what Scripture tells us. They have been living and camping out in this wilderness area. And there's a very wealthy man by the name of Nabal. And he has a lot of sheep and a lot of goats. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us he has 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. Now, that didn't mean that's all he had. He probably had donkeys and horses and who knows whatever else. But we know that he is very wealthy just by these numbers of sheep and goats alone. And he has servants. And so his servants are out pasturing his sheep and his goats. Well, it comes time to shear the sheep. And this was a huge occasion. The sheep would be brought in. They would be sheared. There would be feasting. There would be big meals. It was a big party celebration. Yes, there was a lot of work, but it was also a celebration. Well, while these sheep had been out in the wilderness being watched over, David and his men had acted as a guard around the sheep and Nabal's servants. So they made sure that the sheep and these servants were protected from predators in the wild, as well as any bands of people who would want to come in and steal the sheep or harm the men. 
No, they hadn't been hired specifically by Nabal to do that, but he knew that they were out there doing that, and he gave his approval by consenting to that position being held by David and his men. So it's time for the sheep shearing. There's this big party that's going on and all this work. And David sends some of his men and they come with a message to Nabal and they are incredibly respectful. And they just lay out their credentials basically and they make a request that David and his men would be allowed to come and to join the feast. They don't ask for all kinds of stuff. They don't set out a demand that says, okay, and we want to make sure that we have this much mutton and we have this much um, raisins and we have this much figs or cakes or whatever it was. They just say, hey, we'll take whatever you decide to give us. We will be grateful for that. We want to partake because we have been part of why you have all the sheep to share to begin with. Nabal is not happy about this. It's not because David and his men were being presumptuous. It's because Nabal's a jerk. Nabal is a selfish, arrogant, greedy man, and he responds with humiliation and with incredible disrespect. Basically, he says, "Uh, there's a lot of people out running around in the wilderness these days. Seriously, Nabal? That many people have running around in the wilderness providing sheep guarding services free of charge? I don't think so. And then he goes on and he gives himself away because he adds in his response information that the servants of David hadn't even told him. He knew exactly who David was, even though he says, who, who is this man? Who, I, like, I don't even know who you're talking about. He tries to play dumb, but then he gives himself away, which is Typically what happens when people are in the know and they want to act like they're stupid and they don't know what's going on. So David's men go back and they report what Nabal had said to them. And David is furious. Here again, just because somebody has been called and anointed by God, which David had been, doesn't mean that everything that they did, God approved of. There's no indication here that David stops and seeks God and says, okay, what am I supposed to do? Rather, what we see here is he's just angry. He has been rejected, he has been insulted, and he's going to get revenge. That's all this is about. And so David straps on his military gear. He tells his men to do the same, and he makes a rash proclamation that they're going to go off and they're going to kill Nabal and every male in his family. Make no mistake, this is not an empty threat. David was entirely prepared to carry out this threat. Well, while David's servants are going back to report to David what had happened and David's getting himself and his men ready, and they're going to go flying into this camp and swords swinging. The servant goes and tells Abigail, Nabal's wife, about what had transpired. And I think this is hilarious because at the end of his account, he feels at liberty to say, nobody can talk to Nabal because he's such a worthless fellow. It's clear that everybody around Nabal could see what a jerk he was, that he was arrogant and he was selfish 
He could not be reasoned with. He was going to do whatever he wanted to do. It didn't matter what anybody said. His servants know it. His wife knows it. And it's just like it's common knowledge. Seems like everybody knows, but Nabal doesn't care. Abigail says, I am going to do something about this. Here is what we have to understand. Abigail, as Nabal's wife, was supposed to be in submission to him. So how is it that she is right when she totally violates and does the exact opposite of what Nabal said needed to be done? And this is an application of a principle that we looked at last week. Institutions and traditions are designed to serve people, not the other way around. And that includes marriage. Nabal and every male in his family is going to be killed if they don't escape. If somebody doesn't act here, and it's clear Nabal's not going to do it. There is a powerful principle here that we cannot ignore. Abigail could not use her role as wife to invalidate her responsibility as a human being. She knew that other people's lives were at risk. Innocent people were at risk. And somebody needed to step up on behalf of those people. And being a wife who was supposed to be in submission to her husband did not trump that. Because again, the institution of marriage is designed to serve people, not the other way around. So Abigail steps out. Immediately, she begins saying, okay, you go get the donkeys. You, you go get some mutton. You, you go get some raisins. And she, she loads up a bunch of food with bread and, and all of these provisions. She gets these all loaded on all of these donkeys and off she goes. She doesn't send a servant with an answer. She goes in person. She comes to David and she gets off the donkey and she places herself on the ground in a position of humility and respect. This isn't humiliation. This is a position of deep honor and respect. And she pleads with him to stop his rash behavior and to accept from her what was rightfully his and his men. Everybody in Nabal's camp knew about David and his men, and Abigail clearly understands that David has been anointed by God to someday be king of Israel because she references that in the speech that she makes to David. So she knew it. Nabal knew it. Nobody here was in ignorance about who David was or his position or what God had promised to him in the future. And so when Abigail shows up in direct violation of what her husband had said was going to happen, she assumes a position of respect and honor, and she affirms David's calling. And on the basis of that calling says, hey, don't mess things up by acting rashly and taking out your anger on innocent people. She acknowledges her husband's a jerk. She doesn't lie about that. She doesn't try to cover for him. She doesn't try to say, oh, honey, you just don't know the stress that my husband has been under. I mean, there's all these sheep and there's all this celebration. She doesn't make excuses for her husband at all. She's not unfairly throwing him under the bus to be mean. She's just telling it like it is. He is selfish. He's arrogant. He's not fair. She knows that. She understands that. 
She understands that David and his men have been treated quite unfairly, and she is there to set things right. Abigail's intervention spares the innocent lives, not only of Nabal and how many other men that would have been there, but also spares David and his men from acting rashly and taking innocent lives. Abigail has no way of knowing how things are going to turn out with Nabal. The scripture doesn't specifically say this, so this is total conjecture on my part, but I don't think it's a stretch to imagine that Abigail probably thought, I'm going to do this, and when Nabal's going to find out, I'm going to be in for it. And whether that was going to mean a verbal lashing, whether that was going to mean a physical beating, whether that was going to mean a cold shoulder, whatever that was going to mean, it was certainly not going to mean, oh, I love you, honey. Thank you so much for all that great wisdom that you showed and the, the actions that you took to intervene and to set things straight. Oh, honey, thank you so much. That was definitely not going to be Nabal's response to Abigail. She is taking a huge risk in what she's doing, but she courageously steps out to set things straight and to protect innocent lives. We know how the story turns out, but Abigail didn't know it when she ordered that food, had it all placed on those donkeys and rode off to meet David. And she certainly didn't know how it was gonna turn out when the next morning, when her husband starts to recover from his hangover, tells him what she did. Now, she does go and tells him what she did. She didn't leave it up to some other servant. She doesn't wait for him to find out by, her, by himself. She goes and says, I'm going to tell you what I did yesterday. And Nabal is afraid. And God intervenes at this point. As a matter of fact, Nabal becomes immobile. We don't really know whether he went into a coma. We don't know if he had a heart attack. We don't really know exactly what happened. We just know that somehow he becomes incredibly incapacitated. And then 10 days later, he dies. When David hears about Nabal's death, he sends off and he asks Abigail to come and be his wife. And she agrees to that. She was probably as ready to get as far away from Nabal as she possibly could. So again, let's, let's kind of look through some of this again. Just because David was anointed and called by God, he wasn't justified in his rash reaction to being humiliated and insulted by Nabal. God uses Abigail's courage even though her actions are in clear defiance of her husband's wishes in order to protect David, his men, Nabal, and a lot of other innocent lives. She doesn't hide behind her role as wife to excuse her from accepting responsibility as her role as a person, possibly a mother, and in whatever other capacity she had people in that camp who were at risk. And looking at Saul, we see again, someone who has a selfish heart will always have a divided heart. And we see in leadership is good leaders 
are about serving their people, not about their people serving them. All right, we're going to wrap up here for today. And as I said at the beginning, I'm going to give you the details. So if you'd like to turn this podcast into the backbone of a strategic Bible study for yourself, and if you've got a spouse or kids for your family, then go to stephaniepresents.com, sign up for highlights, and you're going to get three days of additional material, Bible passages that you can read. It's a very manageable amount. You can read that. You can listen to it on a, on a Bible audio app. And I also reference two children's Bibles. One is for readers who aren't quite ready for the full version of the Bible yet. And secondly, for preschoolers, a storybook that you can read that goes along with what you're reading. There's insights and discussion questions that go along with that. Oh, yeah, and each week I throw in a parenting question and try to provide an answer for that. So, again, you can find all of that at stephaniepresents.com. Remember, my friend, you have an impact that truly is immeasurable, eternal, and irreplaceable. Thank you for listening. For information on speaking engagements and other resources, visit the website at stephaniepresents.com. Remember, learn yourself, love God, and live connected.